Hey, thanks so much for listening to this message. My name is Jason, and I'm one of the ministers here at the Madison Church of Christ. It's our hope and prayer that the teaching from God's Word you hear today will bless your life and draw you closer to Him. If you're ever in the Madison, Alabama area, we'd love for you to worship with us on Sundays at 8.30 or 10.30 a.m. If you have any other questions about the Bible or want to know more about the Madison Church, find us at madisonchurch.org. Be sure to also check out our Bible study podcast, Madison Church of Christ Bible Studies. Thanks again for stopping by. Amen. Good morning, everyone. So glad you're with us, especially if you're visiting with us. It's, it's great to see people coming in for the holiday. We know a lot of people are moving out and going and visiting other places, but to see you come our way is uh, awesome, and we love that very much. I hope you'll just pardon me for a moment as I think about someone that's very uh, special to me, though I never, ever met this person. The, the fellow you see up on the screen is J.C. Presnell, Joseph Curtis Presnell. He was my great-grandfather. I don't have any memories of him because he passed away before I was born. His wife, Myrtle, uh, that is pictured also, she is the, she, I did know her for just a few years. Maybe I was three or four years old when she passed away. And I have one really core memory about her and that's it. And that memory is simply this. She would invite me to sit into her lap and she would take her arm and she would hold it up and she had some skin that was flappy. And uh, I would flap that skin and I would giggle. And she would giggle back, and uh, that is the only memory I have of Miss Myrtle. Uh, and by the way, we didn't have smartphones, so don't make fun of me about that. That's just kind of how we did things back in the day. But when I think about this man, uh, Joseph Curtis, um, I didn't know a lot about him. And in fact, I, I spent a lot of time, you know, asking questions of my parents. I always do this, like, you know, tell me more about so-and-so and so-and-so, and tell me a little bit more about my great-grandfather. And so I heard some different things, you know, through the years. And, you know, I found ways to connect with those things on some level. Uh, And though I never have seen him in the face, I can see him and my grandfather. I can see the way his head sits on his shoulders. I can kind of see the posture of my grandfather. I can see a little bit of that in my dad as he's beginning to age a little bit more. And so I, I draw a little bit of a connection just looking at the photo itself. But years ago, maybe 15 years ago, the Austinville Church of Christ congregation over in Decatur, now Decatur Church of Christ, uh, they had a special uh, magazine that they made about their 70-year history. And in that history, it's a church that I grew up in growing up, so I was very interested in what they had to say. And so I'm looking through it, and I'm seeing some pictures of people that I knew growing up and that kind of thing. But then I turned into this one page, and it had a special tribute to J.C. Prestle. So I was like, well, that's, that's really cool, you know. And so I started reading it, and I don't know what, it, what this will mean to you, if this will connect with you on the same level it did for me, but knowing that he was my great-grandfather made what it said more important to me. It was more significant. And so I, I read through it, and it, it talked about his kindness, about how he was very selfless, about how he would not only uh, do a lot of things for the people within the church as an elder and as he would pray for people and those kinds of things, he wasn't necessarily a dynamic personality, but he was just thought of as someone who was kind-hearted. And as I read the article, it talked about his car and how it was kind of beat up, 
But everywhere you saw his car, it was because he was taking that car to help someone else. So he was in charge of the pantry at the church. So he was like the elder that kind of watched over benevolence. And so he looked for people in the congregation who were going through tough times and definitely wanted to help them out. But then he would also carry from the pantry bags of groceries in the back of his car. And if he saw anyone who was in need, someone struggling, someone asking for food, he would just take those groceries right there and hand them to them and say, hey, I, I want to help you with your physical need, but do you mind studying the Bible with me? Or do you mind me bringing you to church where we can worship together and I can spend some more time with you to invest in you spiritually speaking? And so he created this benevolence program at the Austinville Church, and it was something that, you know, was very successful. He had Parkinson's, his hands shook, but I'm told that in the back of the auditorium after every service, he would go back to the back and the little kids would come up and every one of them would get a pat on the head. And with that pat on the head and the little hug around the hip, he would give them a piece of candy and love on those kids and be a nurturer of them. So I don't know what it does for you. I never met the guy, but because I read a little bit about him and because I'm connected to him, physically speaking, I was moved by that. And I had to ask myself the question, am I living that kind of life? Am I, you know, is my legacy going to be equivalent to that? And I think what happened inside of me as I read this, I wanted to be more like that. Well, this may not mean as much to you, but we talked in a few weeks ago about Josiah. And Josiah is the great grandson of Hezekiah. And so today we're going to be talking about Hezekiah. And when you think about all the things that Josiah did, when he focused on the Passover, when he focused on God's law, when he focused on seeking God with all of his heart, all of those things come from a few generations back where his great-grandfather was Hezekiah. So I want us to dig into Hezekiah a little bit. But before I do that, I want, to, I want you to think about the influence that, as I talk about my great-grandfather and the influence he has on me, and I think about maybe how Hezekiah was at least a standard that Josiah may have heard of, I want you to think about where you are right now in your life. Could you be that one person that has a significant impact on someone else? This, this thing came to my mind, be that one to someone so that one can be one for another someone. I want you to think about where you are right now, what kind of legacy you're building up, because I think sometimes we often uh, imagine that we are in this own little bubble and that we just live in our own lives and we're just supposed to you know, affect the things immediately around us. But what I'm trying to tell you is that you have a long-lasting impact if you're investing in all the right things. And I want to ask you, are you that one person that will be the person for the next person, right? In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, it's interesting that Paul, talking to Timothy, he says, the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, those same things commit to other people who will be able to teach others also. That's right. That's how the gospel is perpetuated. That's how our faith is passed along. And so I want all of us to be thinking about that today as we talk about Hezekiah. And let's get into his story a little bit. He's 25 years old, reigned for 29 years in the kingdom of Judah. And uh, this, is, this is a good thing to be reminded of. The, we got the divided kingdom, right? You got Judah in the south. You got Israel in the north. And what's happening at this time is the, uh, the northern kingdom of Israel has gone deep into idolatry. And as a result, God has punished them. They've been taken into Assyrian captivity. And the Assyrians are pretty rough. They come through and they plunder and they take you. And then they take you back home and they put you to work and make you slaves and all those kinds of things. And then they just keep going and keep moving and grabbing more and more. They're just power hungry and they're not very merciful as they do so. 
And so that's the time. And in the middle of all this, Judah is kind of in a wreck too. They've abandoned God. They haven't been worshiping the way they're supposed to. And I know this sounds like a broken record. We talk about this. It seems like every week that these good kings had to bring something back because they had departed and wandered away from God. Well, that's the same story that we see here. And by the way, we're in 2 Kings, we're in 2 Chronicles, and we're in Isaiah today. Hezekiah is in multiple locations. Uh, and so there's, there's different aspects that are emphasized in each of these. So we'll be bouncing around quite a bit this morning. It says in the first year of his reign, and you know, when anybody takes a job, the first thing they want to do is make a good impression, have an impact in those kinds of things. But listen to what Hezekiah did with his influence. It says he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. Now, in the fact that he says he opened the doors, what does that tell you? They were closed, right? They weren't open for business. They weren't worshiping God the way they were supposed to. And so he, it says that he, he calls the Levites together that have supposed to have been serving in this capacity. And he says, hey, I want you to do something for me. I want you to consecrate yourself and consecrate the Lord's house. I want you to go in there. I want you to clear everything out. I want you to take all the immoral stuff. I want you to take the idolatrous stuff. I want you to take anything that does not resemble God himself and pull it out of there. And then let's, let's do some cleansing within the temple. So they spend a lot of time. In fact, it, it talks about uh, how he wanted to take all the filth. And certainly there was immorality that was in there. There were all kinds of terrible and harmful and awful things that were done within the temple, sacrifices that were made, you know, sexual things that were done that were just completely immoral and awful, uh, murder and, and a lot of different things that took place that were not God honoring. So he says, I want you to take all that out, but I also want you to do some cleaning. Now, for any of you who've ever cleaned out your garage, this is how we do it. I'm not saying this is the right way to do it, but when I get to the point where I'm ready for my garage to be clean, what happens is everything comes out, right? It's like, it's like the garage puked into the driveway, right? And everything is just strewn everywhere. And we go through and we go, I didn't know we had that type thing, you know? And so we start pulling stuff out. And then what we do is we go and we get the blower, blow everything out. We sweep it, we clean it, and we get it completely cleaned out. And then we start putting things back in in an orderly fashion so we know where things are, create more floor space, whatever you're going to do. Well, there's some of that going on, but more of it is the mindset of what's taking place. We're looking to consecrate this, sanctify it, set it apart as a special place where we meet God. And so they're doing this, and it says that they do this for a long time. In fact, a really long time. And what I guess what I want us to be reminded of is whenever we decide that we want to do something that's right, and we want to change, and we want to come back to God, that that requires a commitment of purity that is amazing, uh, that is full, okay? And so I want us to be mindful of that. When he's, when he's asking them to go in there, this is not like a, a thing where you've cleaned it before. No, this is something totally different because we want to make this place special. And so for us in our own lives, if there are things in our lives that need to be cleaned out, that need to be put away, like make it a full commitment to purity. Not, you know, I want to have this other thing hanging around in here that's, that's a little bit of a defilement. No, fully commit to purity. And when we do, that requires us to be really honest with ourselves and to move out things that are harmful for us. It says that Hezekiah did what was right in the eyes of God. And he went so far as they were cleaning things out to take something that was a very important relic in their history. If you'll remember in Numbers chapter 21, there was a bronze serpent, okay, that, that Moses used. Bottom line is, as the Israelites were being taken out of Egyptian bondage and they were wandering around for a while, people were complaining and griping. And what happens? God sends fiery serpents from heaven. It's like Sharknado, you know, kind of, it's weird. Uh, and so these serpents come in and they bite the people and the people who are bitten die. 
So God hears the cries of the people and says, hey, let's create uh, a, a, a bronze serpent that they will look at and recognize that the God who brings them salvation and takes them out of captivity is also the God who can bring judgment upon them. And so they were to look up at the serpent and think about God and his provision. And so when they looked on that serpent after being bitten, they were healed of that. So when you see this, this, uh, sign, this sign or this symbol, and you see it even in medical today, is it's kind of the, the representation of healing even today. And it's called the Nehushtan. I hope that's right, Richard is a Hebrew scholar, so he'll tell me later if I said that right. But basically it means something really complicated like bronze thing or, or copper serpent, okay? And they would look at that and that was supposed to provide them the healing. Again, the healing coming from God, not that idol, but you know what happens. People who have a tendency for idolatry turned to that and made that the thing that they paid tribute to and that they honored, that they offered sacrifices to. Well, in the process of that, he says, we're going to get rid of that too. So they busted up that relic and, uh, and did away with it as a part of this full cleansing so people would once again be pointed to God. And so not only then they did that, they opened up the, the temple. And so now everything is about worship and everything is about coming together and, and giving our fullness to God. And worship has been reestablished and it's an exciting time. But Hezekiah doesn't stop there. He, he looks out and he sees that there are people who still are, are wandering away from the Assyrians, people who are, have escaped that, uh, that hardship of that captivity, and they're just looking for a place. And so they've been coming into Judah to, to take refuge there. And so he sent letters out to everybody, not just Judah, but also in all of Israel, and went to the furthest tribes as, as he could to let them know that we want you to be welcomed back to come and, ex, and uh, to experience the Passover again. Now, this is something that they had not done for like 250 years or so. And so this was important that they were going to bring it back, reinstitute Passover, and once again come into that fellowship with God and appreciation for what he had done for them. And so he sends this out and it says, he sends these letters to everyone and, and the letter itself said this, O people of Israel, return to the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, that he may turn again to the remnant of you who have escaped from the hand of the kings of Assyria. Okay, those of you who are out there homeless right now, who are out there looking for a place of refuge, this is that place of refuge. Come and engage your hearts again and worship to God so that we can enjoy this, this feast again together. So they went out and, you know, as it, as it goes, folks, when we go out and we invite people to come and to be a part of worship, there are going to be some people that are like, you've got to be kidding me. They're, they're going to laugh at you. They're going to scorn you. They're going to make fun of you and all those kinds of things. But what you're doing is you're looking out for those people who have receptive hearts, who are willing to come back. And that's exactly what happens. So there are people in other tribes of Israel that decide to come and be a part of this. And it was an exciting time. I want you to think about what it means to have one person who makes a moral decision, okay, to do the right thing. And that one uh, person with a moral courage, how he often awakens the repressed conviction of the disheartened. Now that's fancy terms, but what it basically means is, are you or could you be that one person who stands up for what's right, who does the cleansing, who does the inspiring, who does the challenging, who steps up to the plate, and calls for everyone around you to do the right thing. Could you be that one person? Because it's often that one person who makes that decision that causes people who are sometimes struggling, going through a difficult time. Maybe they've lost their faith or maybe they just kind of drifted away a little bit. Maybe it's they're, they're frustrated or they're angry or they've been hurt. And deep inside, they know they need God. Deep inside, they know they need to turn back to God but they can't find the strength, but it's your moral, moral courage. 
and your ability and your desire to do the right thing that causes them to be challenged enough to come back and, and report. So what happens is all these people come and it says the hand of God was on Judah to give them one heart to do what the king and the princess commanded by the word of the Lord. Can you understand this, how awesome it is? So all these people show up for the Passover. And as they gather together, it says they praise the Lord day and uh, by day, singing with all their might to the Lord. They did this for seven days. And Hezekiah spoke encouraging to all the Levites who showed good skill in the service of the Lord. What, what that basically means is these Levites had not been doing their job for real uh, in some time. And so he's bringing them in and they're preaching and they're, 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 they're doing their part. They're, they're administering the worship and, and they're coming in and, and Hezekiah looks at them and says, man, you guys are just doing a great job. I can totally relate to this. There are times where I leave this this area right here and walk out the door after preaching a sermon and I'm kicking myself all the way out to the foyer going, man, why didn't I say that? And why did I say that? Why, why did I all of a sudden think to do that? You know, and, and I'm kicking myself and beating myself up and I'll go out there and some sweet sister will come out and lie through her teeth and say, that was just so encouraging. And I want you to know if you are that fibber, I love you and I appreciate you so much. Because what I'm saying here is that, that Hezekiah recognized, one, there's, there's joy and there's, there's power in this experience together. But also there's something special about the encouraging word, that, that word that empowers us to do the right thing, that little bit of a nudge that says, you're going to make it, it's going to be okay, and I'm proud of you, and I'm glad that you're here. That is the environment here at Madison, and I love that so much. I'm so thankful that we have the uplifting worship, that we can come together and we can sing Shout Hallelujah. How disappointing would it be if we were in, there, in here going, Shout hallelujah. I mean, that would be so disappointing, but I see it in your faces. And when I stand up here and I'm watching your faces as you worship, it's just so encouraging. And that, that, that voice of encouragement, that voice of, of positivity, the energy that is drawn when we come together and we're strengthened together as God's children, that's a very powerful thing. And it brings unity and it brings revival. And I hope that you want to be a part of something like that here at Madison that you want to bring that joy with you, that we're not here to be, be ultra critical of each other or to, to parse words and all those kinds of things, but just to be in, encouraged and uplifted and inspired to do great things. I love that that's the power here. So they had such a great experience that it says that they wanted to do it even more. It says they asked for another seven days. And Hezekiah had to open up the, the king's storehouses, all the, all the animals that had to be slaughtered and consecrated and all these kinds of things. It's like he brought out this stuff that it was too much even for the Levites to be able to get into. And there's a whole long story there about how he was fully invested in giving that, that over for worship. And it says there was great joy in Jerusalem for since the time of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, there had been nothing like this in Jerusalem. Again, 200 plus, 200, maybe 50 years since the time where they had really experienced Passover together. And here Hezekiah has brought it back. And not only did the people respond by joy and, and being together, but begging for closer association with God with more time together in fellowship and in worship together. But revival leads to buy-in. And, and you may say, well, what do you mean by that, Brandon? I mean full investment, total commitment. These people were coming in and they were inspired. And it's kind of like the old school uh, revivals of our day, tent meetings that would happen. People would come in and you would see like, you know, 
the, the conviction getting to people and how they would be ready to jump forward and make a decision to live their life for God. That's the same thing that's happening here. These people are fully invested. And so as Hezekiah is bringing them in and he is remembering the commands of the, of the law that were given before him, he begins to start asking more of these people. And so it, it required their buy-in. So what does he say? He, he commands them uh, to give a portion due to the priests and the Levites that they might give themselves to the law of the Lord. And so they brought in this abundant tithe of everything. And you might say, well, why did they have to bring in these tithes? Well, the Levites, if you'll remember, when they came into the land, they were not given a portion of land. They weren't given jobs. Their job was to minister to the people and to offer that worship together. And so... The idea was that the tithe was brought to take care of their, their physical needs, to provide for them their provisions, their, their livestock, all those kinds of things. And so he's restoring that. He's asking for them to do that. Well, these people are bought into it. So listen to what it says. They says they, they brought this tithe in abundance. And if you keep reading, you're gonna find out that they bring their contribution, not just a little bit, not just on the minimum level. It says they bring them in heaps. Literally, they're like, we, we have nowhere to put this stuff. So they're just piling all the contributions over here and finding a place over here somewhere to put these contributions together. What am I saying? They, for three months, it says, or four months, yeah, from the third month to the seventh month, they began to give and give and give to the point where there's big piles of heaps everywhere. And so Hezekiah is looking at this and he's going, what happened? It's not like these people all of a sudden got new things or new jobs or it's not like they all of a sudden got more possessions how is it that they are bringing these things that they're capable of doing this and so he asked this question of the high priest and the high priest says this he says since they began to bring the contributions into the house of the lord we've eaten and had enough and have plenty left for the lord has blessed his people so that we have this large amount left are you catching it it's almost like it's just multiplying because they're coming and they're giving fully now this, this is something for us to be reminded of and something for us to be challenged by. Am I giving to that degree? Am I giving sacrificially as these people? Am I bought into what's going on here that I would find it in my heart to open up that checkbook and to give to the church because of what God has required of me. We talked about it in the offering this morning and Hunter did a great job to remind us that it is us surrendering those things over to God. It is us saying, I trust you for my provisions. And these people were so bought in that they brought it and it was in heaps. Folks, when we're truly touched by God's generosity toward us, when we recognize the grace and the mercy that he has poured out on us and the forgiveness that he's given us, it should help us be so excited to give because we know that our giving is what puts our trust in him and allows us to do even greater things than before. And so I want to encourage all of us to really stop and think about that. You know, there may be some here who haven't given in a long time. I want you to understand the Lord can do his work without your money. I think it's important we recognize that. God is so much greater than our stuff. But I also want you to be reminded that part of this challenge is for you yourself to grow in this character of giving to God and placing your trust in him. So I'm asking all of us to look again. Ask yourself, am I doing what these people did when they were bought into what God is doing among them? 
In talking about Hezekiah, he said he trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. There was none like him before or after. The Lord was with him, and wherever he went out, he prospered. And we talked about this a few weeks ago with Josiah. When things are going great and things are moving in the right direction, what can you always expect? You can expect the enemy to be nearby. Well, in this case, the Assyrians have already come through and they've wiped out all of Israel and they've taken them off to captivity. And now they're working their way down the Mediterranean coast and they're beginning to take and pick off some of the, of the cities of Judah as well. So the kingdom of Judah is, is now at risk. The reason they were taken is because they had gone off into idolatry and they weren't listening to what God had to say. And so God is basically punishing them for, for their rebellion and their running away from him and choosing other gods ahead of him. And so now... This is moving down into Judah, and things are getting pretty intense. So it says, in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah, and catch this, and took them. That's scary, because now he's in their neck of the woods. And even though Hezekiah's got all these things going around that are great, and people are returning back to the Lord, he sees this. And as a result, there's some things that take place. Let's talk a little bit about Sennacherib. He's the king of Assyria. He was Sargon II's son. Uh, and, you know, you may not like him very much, but he was such an effective leader uh, from that standpoint of success and conquering and all those kinds of things. Militarily, he was, he was something. But he was not very compassionate, patient, and he was pretty full of himself. But you'll see these little, these little uh, they call them prisms, uh, or the annals of uh, Sennacherib. And in that is like maybe 15 inches by 5 inches, and it's a, a hexagon. And in each of those little rows, there's a cuneiform, uh, Akkadian cuneiform, and where he, they actually detail all the the, the battles that he went through, the different things that he conquered, and all those kinds of things. And so in that is, is pretty, pretty detailed you know, stuff. And I'd love to be able to read that cuneiform. It's just really fascinating if you look really close at that. But it reminded me as I was reading about some of the things that he wrote on these, I thought of this guy. Y'all know who Michael Buffer is, right? He's the guy that's always like, let's get ready to rumble, you know. And then he, he always announces the boxers. And it's always, you know, like that really dramatic. And it just seems like they go on and on forever. Well, the beginning of Sennacherib's uh, annals, it says this. The great king, the powerful king, the king of the Assyrians of the nations. You get the idea, right? I won't go through all of it. But he has this big sales pitch for himself basically to project himself as this great being. And it talks about all the things that he had done and plundering and the warrior and, and being the punisher of unbelievers and all those kinds of things. Very, very self-promoting, very much so. And as you read these annals and you compare them to the biblical narrative, you're going to find some similarities. You're going to find that these, these histories are very similar, of course, told from different perspectives. And uh, Sennacherib obviously uh, wanted to make sure that he looked good and all these things, so he, he made certain that that happened. So they're moving down the coast there. You can see the little red line and the, the, the arrow heading back up toward Jerusalem. And then you see all those red dots, all of those red dots. Um, I see Mike Baker over there salivating because it's a map. That's funny. Uh, and all those red dots represent all of the cities that had already been taken. So if you're looking around and you're in charge of this kingdom and you see all of these, these cities falling, it becomes scary. So while they're over in a place called Lachish, what happens is uh, Hezekiah says, okay, let's go ahead and buy him out. <laughs> let's go ahead and send all this money. So it's like he sends 
like 2,000 pounds of of gold and 20,000 pounds of silver and a bunch of other possessions and basically says, hey, whatever we did to offend you, let's just let that be done. And here's here's our offering and tribute because he had previously refused to pay it. But now seeing the threat, he begins to recognize this. And yet they take it, but there's more to come. I won't, I guess as we talk about Hezekiah and we talk about him being so great, I think it's really important that we recognize he, he's a real guy. Uh, he's, he's not Superman. He's not always going to be the right things at the right time. He is very much like each one of us and that he has those moments of weakness. So first of all, he gets alarmed just like you and I do. The second thing is he said, I'll tell you what, I'll just put a Band-Aid on it. I'll, I'll just send all my riches and wealth and all that stuff to him and just pay him off. And that way that'll just satisfy him. And he just wanted the plunder anyway, so we'll just do that. He's not into power. He just wants the money and stuff. So we'll just do that. I'll just pay that and that'll take care of that. And then ultimately he gets busy working, trying to do some things to fix things up. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. But when that's all not working, he gets terrified again. And then he needs that reassurance. And so the prophet of God has to come and strengthen him and give him what he needs again. And then finally, he's able to instill confidence into his people. Do you get what I'm saying? There's like a pattern of things that we battle through. And each one of us can, uh, can be reminded of that in our own life and our own weaknesses. So here's what Sennacherib said about uh, Hezekiah. You read all this stuff and it talks about all the 46 uh, fortified cities that he had taken in the land of Judah. But he also, one of the things that he really bragged about was that because he had taken all those cities, he had surrounded uh, Jerusalem and basically, as he put it, I shut him up like a caged bird in his royal city of Jerusalem. Now, I want you to notice something. He does not in this text claim victory over Hezekiah because he ultimately will not have victory over him. So Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib shows up, and when this is the first go around, he's ready to pay him off and all that kind of stuff. But he recognizes that he's got to do some things. And so what he notices is that as the king is coming and, and getting around the base of, of Jerusalem, like they're taking his resources. I mean, the, the Jerusalem has the water, Jerusalem has the supplies, and he's around the base of it, and he's shutting him out. He's not letting anyone in or out, and they're consuming the water and the, the goods that are out there in the king's field. So he says, why should the king of, of Assyria come and find much water? So he goes into action to fix some things. Now, this is kind of a rough drawing, but you can see on the hillside that's descending off of uh, Jerusalem, you can see some waterways. They had this aqueduct that they ran along the side of Jerusalem that that water would flow. It was coming from the uh, what's called the Gihon uh, Spring. And it's a cave that, that has like a siphon type of thing. There's only about 100 of them in all the world that they've discovered. And what it does is it builds up pressure. And then when that pressure builds up, it releases the water out of that cave and it goes into a tributary and runs out. And they, they rerouted that in order to be able to water the king's fields and to take care of his gardens. So what he did is he decided that they're going to shut that up. They're going to close it down. And so what Hezekiah does, and this is amazing, is he takes pickaxes with two different teams, and he starts on opposite sides of Jerusalem, and he works toward underground to build a tunnel where that water can be rerouted and saved for the people of Jerusalem and not given to the Assyrian army. 
It's fascinating. And uh, I heard that Richard uh, Turner, he's told me that he actually, when he went and visited the Holy Lands, that he walked through this thing. It's like five football fields long, and it's a twist and turning kind of thing. And if you look at it, this is kind of what it looks like. That is not actually little Richard, but that is a dear boy in the headlights, I guess. I don't know. But it ends up coming out of the Gihon Spring, and it goes out into the pool of Siloam. And then it filters over into another larger pool from there. And he did all of this in a short period of time while kind of paying off uh, Sennacherib and keeping him at bay. He did this to protect his people, but also uh, to keep the Assyrians away from their supplies. And so it wasn't just that, though. Again, we talked about all these refugees that were coming in, people that had escaped uh, the, the taking away of, of the Israelites. And so they're all in there, and they're gathered around the outside of the city walls. And so he decides to build walls that bring all of that into together. So all of their water supplies and all their people are protected at the same time. Isn't that amazing? He would think to take those people in and make them a part of his kingdom. And so you look, and he expanded the walls and took care of things, and there's a picture of where that tunnel would have been cut out. So... What happens is Sennacherib finally does come back and he's standing there and he sends his, his basically his chief of staff and they go out and they're standing and they see all these, uh, you know, Israelites in, in Judah on the, on the fence, sorry, on the wall of Jerusalem standing over guarding and they're watching and Hezek, I mean, uh, Sennacherib's people are shouting back up to them saying, hey, don't trust in Hezekiah. Don't let him tell you that your God is going to take care of you. Don't fall into the habit of thinking that your God has power over the Assyrians. Look around. The 46 other fortified cities that we've taken, uh, they fell pretty easily at our hand, and they're, you're definitely going to fall as well. Now, here's the thing. I'll go ahead and accept your surrender, and I'll take you with me over to the land. It's going to be a lot like this place, really nice. And he's trying to talk them into these things. And so when he does that, he says, the Lord is not going to take care of you guys. You're going you to have to trust in him. And it says, the people were silent. Catch this. They answered him not a word. For the king's command was, do not answer him. In other words, the idea here is that Hezekiah would have been so strong a leader that he would have said to them, hey, listen, they're going to say all kinds of things. I want you to be prepared for this. And when they do say these things, I want you to be silent. That there's power, there's strength, and just no response. Okay? But the very next verse says this. As soon as Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes. He covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. He, he's terrified, right? So again, when I look at Hezekiah, he's not a perfect man. He's not always the guy who does the right thing at the right time. But I think every one of us there are times where we just need a moment, right? There's moments where we just, everything is too much at one time, and he just needs a moment. But when we have those moments of need, I want us to recognize how important it is for us to seek after God in those difficult circumstances. Notice that it says Hezekiah in that moment went into the house of the Lord. And so as he's talking to God, God sends Isaiah, okay, the prophet Isaiah. And he walks in and he lets Hezekiah know that the Lord has told him about the king of Assyria. And he says, he shall not come into this city. Look at this, nor shoot an arrow, nor come before it with a shield, nor build a siege mound against it. God says, for I will defend the city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. You capturing this? God says, I got this. You do not have to worry. There's not going to be one thing that happens because God is going to take In fact, if you read some of the other accounts of this, it says God is going to put a hook in his nose and send him back right where he came from. Pretty powerful imagery there. 
So <laughs> now Hezekiah is inspired. He's, he's fired up. So he goes to the people and says, be strong and courageous. Do not be dismayed or fear. You think he's heard that before? Sounds very similar to what Joshua said to the Israelites as they were going into the land, right? Don't be afraid. God's got this. God's taking care of it. And so what happened at the middle of this, it says the people took confidence in the fact that God was with them. I mean, here they are. Think about it. They've gathered. They've reestablished worship. They've reestablished this great relationship with God. They're, they're uh, feeling the joy of that togetherness. They're feeling God's protection. They're a little bit afraid because the Assyrians are right there. And then in the midst of it, when Hezekiah stands up and says, hey, God's got this, the people took confidence. That, that word means he brought a calmness. He brought a calmness. What kind of a leader is that? They can just help people settle in, knowing that everything's going to be okay. Be that one to someone so that one can be one for another someone. Think about what Hezekiah did in rising up in leadership and inspiring others to follow suit. So here's what happened. The Assyrians are all gathered. They're ready for battle. And after this prayer and after this conversation with God and after this confidence that he put into the people there, it says the angel of the Lord came and wiped out 185,000 of their people. Now, if you read Sennacherib's annals, you're going to find out that, that he said, oh, a big plague fell upon them. Yeah, right. But what happened is Sennacherib was sent back home in the same way he came, had not shot an arrow, had not done anything to create any kind of war, had not built the siege, none of those things that was typical and customary for the Assyrians. None of those things happened, and Sennacherib went back home. And if you listen to the scripture reading this morning, you find out that after a certain amount of time, his boys, maybe out of embarrassment, killed their father to take his kingdom because they were embarrassed of this kind of defeat. So after all this, you think everything's great, right? But then it appears that Hezekiah gets sick. And I can't get into all the details, but it, it talks about a big boil. Like I don't know if it was a, like a tumor of sorts or if it was a cancer or I, I don't know what it was. But some kind of illness that he had that led to death, right? And so he goes in and he prays and he prays and he's sort of frustrated that he had done all these great things for God and, and, and all this. And so he just, he turns over into his bed. And, you know, if you can imagine a king in his bedroom, that he's sitting there and there's always guards, there's always servants, there's always people standing around attending to every need that the king has. But in his bed, he just rolls over and it says he turns to the wall as if to say, I need my time with God. And he prays this prayer and asks for God to deliver him. And Isaiah comes and tells him, you're, you're going to die. And he's upset about it, and he's praying. And Isaiah is turning out to walk out of the room after t delivering this bad news. And God speaks to Isaiah again and says, go back and tell him he's got 15 years more. Unbelievable. Goes back, and, and when he does this, it's really important that we catch this. Because Hezekiah has done a lot of great things, right? But to some degree, maybe he was holding on to his own goodness to the point where he did not recognize just what grace and mercy God had provided for him. Because when Isaiah comes to him and tells him, you're going to live 15 more years, he does not respond with, uh, oh, thank you so much. It says he did not make return according to the benefit done to him. That's a really fancy way of saying he did something sort of like this. Oh, finally, thanks. It, it was not with the sincerity and the humility that would have been required. 
as God is giving him more time. So God's wrath burned against him. And even though Hezekiah, after knowing this, turns back to God, that wrath is still going to fall on his people. And ingratitude comes from that attitude of self-virtue. And what do I mean by this? Well, I want to just throw a few questions out here to see if maybe we find ourselves that way sometimes. Uh, I think sometimes we often say, I'm doing the right things. Why is it that, that all this stuff is happening in my life? So ask yourself these questions. Have you said these things? Do we struggle with this pride and this self-virtue? If it hadn't been for me, well, this and this would not have happened. Have we ever said that? I think probably some of us have. Have we ever said, well, my prayers were answered. I mean, I just put it all before God and he just answered my prayers. And, and, and while answered prayer is a great thing and it's something for us to praise God over, I, I think sometimes we pull it back as if it was my effort that made it happen. And we got to be careful about that. And sometimes we do this comparison game. Well, at least I don't do, and we fill in the blank, as if we are kind of a step higher than some other people. But you were all sinners and we're all separated from God when we sin. So there's no, no difference in that. But, but maybe we are self-virtuous sometimes. What about, I do a lot of good. Where's my big break? When's that coming? I mean, can we all say that we've probably done that before? Man, I do all these things over and over and over again. And I just don't ever see how God's favor is falling on me. But you don't understand that we're, everything we have is God's favor. And so I think you'll be impressed with my, what I did. All of those things signal to us that, that we think it's about us. And what I want to encourage all of us is, is that we are falling in line with God's purpose. And that anything that happens, we praise him for. The good things, the bad things, we praise him because we know he's going to be there to help us through all of it. And if we absorb that and just say God gets all the glory, it takes it off of us and it keeps us from being filled up with this self-virtue, this pride. Because ultimately, if there was a weakness that Hezekiah had, it was that. Babylon sends an envoy. That just means like these official couriers who would come in and just inquire. They heard that, that Hezekiah was sick and that he survived and that he was still living. And so they came in and they inquired about him and kind of just, you know, made niceties or what have you. And in the midst of all that, Hezekiah took it upon himself to walk them around the kingdom and tell them just how great he was. Showed them everything that he possessed, all of his wealth, all of his materialistic stuff. And he showed them those things. And, and as a result, it kind of infuriated God. God sends Isaiah and Isaiah says to him, behold, the days are coming when all that is in, quote, your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day get this, will be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. Don't miss this last verse. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Fast forward, who are we talking about? Ever heard of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego? Those guys would pay the price for his pride in this situation. Babylon was coming. So while we look at this situation, and Hezekiah is a great guy, it talks about his goodness. I mean, if, if you look at these passages, it's just, it's good. It's all good. He was a great king. And I love that God considers him a great king, even though he had these weaknesses. But it talks about how he sought after God with all of his heart and he prospered. Yes, he had some weaknesses, but he gave himself fully. And that's why God made him successful. I guess the thing that I just want to remind us again is this. 
Will you be that one to someone so that one can be one for another someone? This morning, I just want to ask you sincerely, are you recognizing how what you do right now has an impact on the future? You know, my grandfather, I never met him. I look forward to meeting him someday. I hope that through his example that I have found some ways to honor God in the same way. And I hope that my children and my children's children and my great-grandchildren will fall in love with God, not because of me, but because of what God has done. But I want to be that person that can inspire and then ignite a change. Will you be that person? Let me ask an even more targeted question. Will you be that person this morning that will have the courage to make a change that may inspire someone else to change? We have that opportunity at the end of every service. We sing a song, we stand up, and it gives everybody an opportunity in a room full of people who love you to make things right, to challenge yourself, and to grow in your faith, and to know that we all celebrate with you in that victory. Not the shame of it, the victory of coming back to God. If you have that need this morning, please don't delay. Come while we stand and sing.